Welcome to the Big Fan Theory. Charlie, welcome to the Big Fan Theory. Thank you very much. Glad to be here. This is quite exciting because you are the first live guest we've ever had on the Big Band Theory. Everything else has been via Zoom, partly because of the pandemic and partly because they live in New Zealand or whatever. So uh, in 30 seconds or less, as you know, I like to start. Can you tell us who are you, what do you do and why are you qualified to talk about what we're going to talk about? Hi, Bob. Thank you very much. Delighted to be here as your first real live boy, your first Pinocchio. I'm Charlie, specialist and auctioneer for Christie's Wine Department. Uh, so I deal with um, wine sales around the world, mainly in London, Geneva. But we also cover sales in the US um, and in Hong Kong. And I am lucky enough to take the Cape Fine and Rare auction in Stellenbosch every year. I'm also an MW student, as you well know. This morning we've been tasting some wines, and now we're drinking beer. Much better. <laughs> yeah, I'm better with the beer, I think. <laughs> Today, this morning did not go well. <laughs> no. And my beer, actually, it's called Crisp and Hoppy with a medium bitterness, which, ironically, is like the orange wine we were tasting, right? <laughs> That's exactly, exactly what it was like. Only, um, only palatable. <laughs> so, so I wanted to start in terms of questions. Um, if we can start with tasting rather than... Um, exam questions, which I normally ask. A lot of commercial positioning questions, they say don't forget auctions. Can you tell us what wines you do sell, what you don't sell? When would it be appropriate in a commercial positioning question to say sold at auction or even sold at Christie's? Yeah, sure. Those commercial positioning questions on the practical are quite tricky, aren't they? Uh, because you have to make them interesting. I've seen so many um, examiners' reports that just say, you know, if you're just writing sold in independent merchants and large supermarkets in the UK and the US, then you're not really exciting anybody. So you've got to say something that's that's different and interesting, whether that be, you know, cruise liners or, you know, picnic baskets, deli shop sales, something, whatever. But one of those things is auction, as you will say. And um, for fine wine, that is particularly um, on trend and right to write it and right to put that in. Um, so I would do it for, you know, blue chip Bordeaux and Burgundy, Rhone Valley things, Sauterne for sure, we sell Sauterne. Um, prestige Cuvée Champagne or even vintage Champagne works. I mean, just have a flick through an auction catalogue and look at the stuff we sell, basically, and um, write that in as, a, as, a, as an option if you think that's what the wine is. Is there anything you would never sell? Like if someone, if you had a really rich guy who came with a load of blue chip claret and also a couple of cases of Veneto Pinot Grigio that they wanted to put through as well, like uh, how do you say no to them nicely? Yeah, I don't know. It's tricky. I mean, you know, um, uh, Christie's in particular. That you know, the, the, there's two scales of auctions really. You have the sort of the big um, international auction houses of which Christie's is one, and then the smaller domestic auction houses. Um, and Christie's is, is moving in a, in a position where really it wants to deal with uh, sort of big single owner sales of blue chip wine um, because that's what makes sense from a, from a business perspective. Um, and so, yes, the difficulty is when you come across a seller and they have Fiano or you know, even if they have sort of Village Chablis, um, it's, it's tricky for us to take those wines along. So usually we send them to a sort of a, a separate auction house where they can sell them on the domestic market and make a bit of money for those and we'll take the cream of the crop if you like. Um, sometimes I just want to sell those wines because they're interesting. If I go to a client's house, and I, I see something fun, then I just say, yeah, we're going to put it in. And if it's 60 quid a case, who cares? I'll buy it. <laughs> um, right, so can you take us through the full selling process? So uh, I, I, do you approach people to find stuff to sell or is it pretty much all incoming? And how does it work for someone who's you know, never sold through auction before? 
A bit of both, really. Yeah, reactive and proactive. Obviously, we you know we have a list of clients that we sort of deal with, and uh, we approach those people if we're putting an auction together. Um, if we're putting a sort of curated auction together and we're looking for specific things, then we can go to domains and ask for you know specific ideas. If we wanted to do a sort of a, a sherry focus or a port focus, we know all the guys at those places and and can go to them. In, in other cases, it's the big D's. That's usually the way the auction works. It's death, debt, and divorce, um, and those are the reasons that people um, come to you because um, they need to sell their wine because they can no longer drink or they need some money or those sort of things. Um, and then the other side of it is just the pure investment thing. People you know, buy wine for investment and realise it's come to a time when they've made a bit of money or could make a bit of money. And so they offer is for sale and uh, we are happy to move it along to somebody else who wants to drink it or indeed keep it and make some money on it in future. So what are the main advantages and disadvantages of selling wine at auction? Uh, the advantages really are top prices. Um, you know, you be, beat more world records at auction than you ever would on the retail market. This is obviously for mega blue chip wines, you know, Henri Jaillet, DRC, Latour, Lafitte, all of these really collectible things. Uh, Burgundy is now the value of the uh, auction world and uh, wines such as DRC and Rousseau are sort of the darling of the auction world. And uh, Bordeaux tends to be the sort of volume driver. I'd say it's 60% of our sales um, and making up, you know, some numbers on the first growths and other intriguing wines like Le Pan and Petrus, etc. Um, but that, that's the advantages really that you, you get really top prices for really rare wines. Disadvantages? Well, there isn't any, is there? I mean, uh, you, you know, you get to deal with someone like me and uh, I wear a stupid jacket for you, so that's all good news as well. <laughs> Fair enough. Yeah. I, mean, I was amazed with your jackets. Oh, <laughs> uh, yeah? Well, because I've only seen you in the summer, so it's, I've never, and then I, uh, I found you just quickly, oh my God, that's incredible. Uh, I have a couple of jackets, but nothing quite. Yeah, no, I don't know where I get them from. I have a little sort of uh, man in Scotland who, uh, you know, sits there in a, in a room and sews me these mad things. That's amazing. <laughs> I don't really, but I, I quite like buying mad, <laughs> mad uh, jackets, and uh, I do the Cape Fine and Rare every year in a sort of uh, um, an animal print, just because I think it's uh, it's quite good for their PR and things. And I like floral, floral stuff too. <laughs> right, so let's go start some old exam questions. One of them is: How can the role of intermediaries between producer and consumer be justified? Obviously, auctions play some part in that. So, well, yeah, how do you justify your existence? Yep, no problem. Yeah, so, I mean, intermediaries, I would look at that question and uh, break it down into, into the sort of component parts, really. I suppose the examiners are thinking about Bordeaux mainly because they want you to talk about the courtier system, which is obviously quite contentious. There's lots of people who believe that uh, courtiers taking their 2% is, uh, is pointless, but, uh, you know, there are f uh, more, probably more people who believe that it, it's um, very fruitful and should continue. Um, so you can talk about the, the Bordeaux system, you know, selling producers through the courtiers to the negotiations on the place. Um, you can talk about um, retailers in terms of agencies, Cornyn Barr and DRC, there's a good example at the top end, and then you can find some examples, you know, sort of down the, mid, the medium ground as well. In terms of auctions, I mean, we, you know, we're not an agency per se, but, you know, we are affiliated to certain um, producers. Um, you know, Christie's is owned by the same person that owns Chateau Latour and the Artemis Group, so we have a sort of connection to, to those estates. Um, but we're also sort of friendly with, um, you know, top estates in terms of if they want to, you know, have a sort of a, a PR sale or a sort of a investment sale, they will look at a consignment that uh, they could potentially sell at auction. Um, we're happy to value it and uh, happy to put Christie's huge marketing PR uh, wheel behind it in order to generate some sort of fun press and prices for them. Can you tell us a little bit about your marketing arm um, and strategy? 
Yep, sure. Um, so Christie's has obviously a huge uh, marketing uh, department across the globe. Um, mainly, this is focused on um, art sales. Um, that's because that's where you know Christie's top um, money and um, PR is made on selling a Da Vinci or a Picasso, etc. Um, but we also enjoy their benefits um, in the wine department. The wine department is part of a luxury group, including. Um, handbags, jewellery and watches um, and we're lucky in that because um, there's the major driver for um, huge prices at auction is cross-departmental um, selling and so what we see in sales like, such as the Geneva sale at the Four Seasons is someone who will come along and be happy to spend X amount of money on a um, Patek Philippe watch um, and then they will also get involved in the wine sale which is happening the next day and spend a bit of money on that too. Um, so we're happy to uh, you know be a sort of uh, a cluster at Christie's, and uh, yeah, wine is sort of the luxury commodity of that, really. Now, how does how does Christie's differ from other auction houses? Obviously, you're going to say it's better, but like, uh, so how does uh, how does Christie's differ from Sotheby's, Bonhams, and then obviously you've got things like Zaki's, which is I think purely wine, um, and then there's the online like Ideal Wine, and then I suppose you could call you know LiveX and wine owners not exactly auctions, but I mean they they all they've all got the, the different traits. How does how is Christie's different? Uh, sure, no problem. Other auctions? There, are there any? <laughs> um, no, yeah, exactly. I mean, it tends to fall into a, a few different sort of categories, really. LiveX is B2B, so they're just selling um, trade to trade. Um, and so that's slightly different. I mean, we're mainly doing, dealing with private clients. We do, of course, have traders who sell. Um, but, you know, LiveX is a, is a separate thing. They also have their sort of um, price indices, which is, is quite intriguing to look at various prices. And I think it's mainly focused on um, Bordeaux. Um, you know, you have the sort of smaller auction houses um, around the UK and around separate markets. You know, Ideal Wine and, uh, and um, Bonhams, I suppose, are, are part of these that are, you know, uh, generating sales um, in key markets such as London, Paris or New York or Hong Kong. Um, and then you have the sort of international auction houses. Um, Sotheby's and Christie's are obviously the two um, oldest um, of those. Um, and then you have the newer sort of American ones who have been based mainly in America and um, Hong Kong and have some presence now in Europe as well. I suppose, you know, it's just the, the same old story, really. It's, um, you know, competition against each other. Um, Sotheby's tend to, I suppose, do sort of um, a different style of sort of selling to us. We're very sort of uh, wine focused. This is why we do lots of um, sort of, you know, proactive things such as me taking the Cape Fine and Rare. I'm interested in promoting the wines of South Africa and so that's why I'm involved in that. Um, Sotheby's style, I suppose, is, um, you know, a little bit different um, to Christie's um, in that way. <laughs> But wait, can you talk us through your? We had Etienne Premier on a while back, who's wine authenticator. Can you talk, take us through your fraud steps? And also, is there ever a case where wine you know is is fraudulent, but you would sell it because with the saying that it's fraudulent? Like there are some very famous um, fake fake paintings that have got an intrinsic value in themselves. Is is there something comparable with wine? And uh, who's liable if you sell something that's a bit? you know, ropey. Yeah, absolutely. Well, no, we don't sell fakes. Um, Christie's has obviously sold these sort of pieces of artworks that are, um, you know, famous for being, um, you know, a sort of copy. Uh, the recent Mona Lisa one is is the famous example. Um, in wine, there isn't a comparable thing. You know, if, if it's not right, then we can't sell it. You know, I suppose things have, have evolved over time and, you know, we're now at a stage where 
the legal department at Christie's are, are dealing with, you know, huge sort of, um, you know, art things and antiquities things. And so, you know, one bottle of wine at £10,000 is just not worth anybody's time. We'd simply just reject anything that we're, we're not happy with. Um, in terms of authentication, you know, we have a, a long-established team doing lots of authentication stuff. We're now a member of Genuine. Um, and basically, you know, if things are coming in in bond, then we will check the provenance and the um, storage history. Things are coming in due to pay. Do you have to be slightly more careful? Um, this is because it's in client sellers, and you obviously need to, um, you know, look into the provenance that they have. So we will usually ask for invoices of purchase for you know, wines, which we are, you know, slightly suspicious about. Um, and yep, that's the the sort of main story really about uh, fraudulent activity at Christie's. With bond with proven provenance, does it guarantee authenticity? Um, I wouldn't say it's a guarantee, especially in the future, because now you know that Brexit's coming around, everything will be coming in in bond. That's the idea of anybody can get anything in at all. Um, but uh, you know, in the past, the, the the story was you know a, a chateau would ship a, a pallet of wine from the chateau to Octavian LCB HD, and so there is a sort of proven track record of where it's been. Um, with duty paid, obviously that comes out of the system and then suddenly it goes into a client's cellar and you don't know what storage temperature that cellar has been, so you don't know what the condition of the wine is, um, nor do you know really who's, where it's come from in the first place. So the duty paid provenance is uh, you know, slightly less traceable than in bond in the past. <laughs> is it, how much of a premium is there for ex-cellar stuff? And the reason I asked this, when I worked in Fine Wine, we had... Um, I won't mention which chateau, but it was a, it was a top Bordeaux chateau, and they were selling a load of stuff ex seller that they would then go in bond to private clients' um, storage. But then the biggest re rejection we had was like, well, as soon as it leaves the chateau, then, then it's the same as any other stock because it wasn't old; it was only you know like within the last ten years or so. Is there a premium on ex uh, seller chateau stuff, especially recent stuff, that's justified? Well, absolutely. I mean, you know, I think the Latour system of now doing Exceller and of releasing the wine when they think it's ready for, for market um, has just sort of proved that it's you know, still selling through on every vintage. Um, and so, you know, Exceller really does have this, um, you know, premium. Obviously, it takes um, some of the joy out of the investment market for investors because, you know, the Chateau is keeping it for that period of time where other people would usually own it. It makes you guys more money, though, eh? <laughs> <laughs> well, not, not me. I mean, I'm not I'm sitting here drinking a Pilsner Lager. I'm not making it anymore. <laughs> Marks and Spencer's. Oh, right, there we are. Okay, it's so not just any Maybe lawyer. it has made a bit more money. <laughs> um, no, but I think, you know, there is, you know, there's, there's always a market for anything which is in demand. Um, and, you know, if, if it's ex-seller, it's usually from a very decent chateau or a decent domain or something. Um, and there will always be a demand for that. You know, people want what other people want. That's how the sort of fine wine auction market works. And so you attach the, the words ex-seller to it. I think that's slightly to the side of the fact that the name in of itself is in demand at X price, and that price could creep up incrementally. Now, uh, this is, I mean, I'm, I'm slightly changing an old exam question, partly because it's, I don't want it to be in dollars, I think pounds is better. You inherit 10 million pounds, and you want to invest in the wine industry uh, via auction. So how would you spend your money to uh, get the best investment? Inherit 10 million. I wonder where this is going to come from. I really hope that that, uh, that does happen to me in the future. But I'm not sure that I would invest it in wine, to be honest. I uh, think I would buy a house in Malibu or something amazing. Um, if I was to invest <laughs> it in um, wine, the, you know, the, the current trends at the moment that are quite exciting is um, if you've got a bit of money, I'd say just buy a pallet of champagne. That's the, the key thing to do at the moment, especially the new releases. They seem to be doing quite well. Don Perignon's P th uh, series is a good example. Uh, Salon, Krug's, um, 
two clothes, the Menil and the Ombonet, um, they're good examples. I mean, you won't probably get a palette of uh, Ombonet, but uh, you could get a few cases. Um, or indeed the sort of vintage releases, they seem to make a bit of money uh, over time. So champagne is one thing. Other things are sort of the uh, you know new march of intriguing low intervention wines. I was in um, Priorat in January, and I was talking to um, Rennie Barbier Jr., um, who's been making um, you know Grenache in the way that his father did for uh, a long period of time in that uh, you know you would uh, make that Grenache and then oak it for a long long period um, in the cellars well that costs a lot of money for the producer to do and then they've got to release it to market and generally they're selling it to a t specific type of consumer those consumers might like sitting in a St. James's club sort of quaffing it um, but Rennie Barbier Jr.'s idea is to go along the sort of Commando G Raul Perez route of doing um, wines that are sort of uh, quite intriguing, crisp, crunchy, with lots of whole bunch, maybe do them in cement, do them aging in glass or something. And you can release those wines to market the year afterwards and then retail them at sort of uh, 300 euro a bottle or something in wine bars in Tokyo or New York or London. Um, so having those two things concurrently for that producer is quite interesting. And, you know, as Commando G proved those wines are hugely in demand among a sort of new set of consumers which is quite fun and so I think you know tapping into that and, and trying to find those sort of producers is quite good uh, lastly I would say look out for the under the radar names uh, Burgundy is a good example you know the names that have come up now Pierre Rock is a good one uh, Arnaud Ant for white wine is a, another good example um, those are things that haven't been collectible in the past but are now becoming more collectible Right, now this is another exam question, kind of repurposed again. As the owner of a Bordeaux-classified growth from the left bank, or right, whichever, which, uh, what, what options are available to you to promote your wine to market? Sure, no problem. Uh, I've done that question, uh, so I can give you my essay plan, if you like. Do, do your essay plan, and then tell us what Christie's would do. Yeah, like, yeah, of course. Uh, one of my paragraphs was the, was the auction part. Um, you know, the other parts are obviously the usual thing, the um, on-premise system through the PLAS, um, one good one that you shouldn't forget is on your tourism. Cadestinol is a good example of that because um, they have uh, ritzy hotels in Geneva and Paris, which they're selling uh, their wines at, at uh, fairly good prices and better prices, in fact, than they're selling on the Place. Um, so that's a, a good part. And then agencies, of course, um, don't forget second wines and indeed third wines. Um, Mouton Cadet is a huge um, financial boom for uh, Chateau Mouton Rothschild. How much do you sell in Christie's of Mouton Cadet? How much? <laughs> um, £10 worth. <laughs> no, not much at all. <laughs> Chateau Mouton Rothschild, though, on the other hand. £10 million yeah, worth. Yeah. Um, yeah, and then the auction side. Obviously, all of the auction houses that are operating uh, in the world uh, look to do these direct sales from Chateau and Domains. That involves us approaching a Chateau to do um, a sale for an anniversary or um, you know, for any purpose, really. Um, we're obviously looking for rare things, um, and we are looking mainly for top vintages, um, mostly uh, in bottle, but large formats are also fun um, because they do fairly well in the American market. Um, and we will look to do those sales um, you know, in London, Hong Kong, New York, or Geneva. We've done many in the past. Um, if you want to have a quick look through um, Christie's old sort of results, uh, the Bouchard sale that we did in Hong Kong direct from the Bouchard sellers includes huge prices for rare things um, that you wouldn't have seen otherwise on the retail market. Um, 
we've also done money for Bordeaux Chateau. Um, so if you want some figures, I'll just go through Christie's results and uh, have a quick look for you know strong vintages like 2009, 2010, uh, 2005, 2000, um, and just see that the prices that we've made for um, those direct from um, Chateau sales compared to what they were selling for on the market. And usually you'll see a sort of 10 to 20% um, increase on the auction because we're selling things to not only wine clients, which is what um, retailers are doing, we're selling things to people who buy watches who buy diamonds, who buy handbags. And, uh, and so buying wine is sort of a, a secondary thing for them, um, which is the benefit that we have over the retail market. So do you think there's going to be more, we're going to see more of, I suppose, Latour and Christie's having the same kind of ownership. Mm. It doesn't quite count as direct-to-consumer, but it's cutting out a lot of stuff in between. Do you think there's going to be more of that from, uh, well, for obviously very top end, and also do you, do you think there's going to be more of that in the middle kind of the market of like, Potensack in the sort of Cru Bourgeois and whatever. What, or I mean, do you think this, how do you th- how do you see the landscape changing? Yeah, sure. I mean, I think the you know the DTC thing, this direct consumer thing, uh, is is a possibility for this year's exam, or if not this year's, next year's. It's certainly a a huge thing now in terms of e-commerce. All of the um, you know top uh, fine wine producers are trying to figure out how. Um, to approach it, um, just look at LVMH's recent purchase into Campari. Um, you know they're, they're buying into the the e-commerce um, platform in order to sell top brands through an already established trading platform. So all of that's happening, and all of the big conglomerates and and you know fine wine producers generally own more than one estate. They're you know sort of a a conglomerate of things. Um, they're finding ways to buy into a trading platform that is already established. That's the, the easiest thing to do rather than setting up your own. In the case of you know something like the tour, their system is, is slightly different because um, you know the name is the name and it will sell you know whatever happens. They are a first growth, of course, um, and so they don't need to buy into a sort of a, a trading platform or anything. They can sort of do things their own way, um, and will continue to do so. How much? How do you do any online auctions? Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, so, what's the difference between? Uh, I understand the the obvious differences that one is online and one is in person. But, <laughs> but in terms of what what are the differences in terms of how you how you sell it, uh, what kind of prices, what kind of products? Uh, can you explain the differences? Sure, no problem. Yeah, well, I mean, um, the obvious dis- difference is you don't get me in a crazy jacket on a rostrum banging a gavel. Um, but <laughs> well, it uh, might do. But just <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. Maybe I'll just do it on video as a GIF over and over. <laughs> Um, no, but uh, the the key thing is that there's an element of D-Day with a with an auction, and I, you know this is the the question really about the future the future of auctions. Um, live auctions perhaps have a future as sort of event auctions, um, and that's where the Cape Fine and Rare and the Napa Premier, the Ospies de Bone, these sort of bigger auctions come in because people want to come to them and people want there to be some element of fun and something happening and for prices to be driven up on the day. So you can get into this, this sort of, um, you know, clients can get into this sort of bidding war between each other that's happening across the room and sort of size each other up. Um, you know, you just have to look at Sex and the City and, um, and the bidding war that happens in that film in order to see what I mean. So um, I was, it was on Next Chateau, they had the guy from Zaki's, or so he started it and he was talking, and it, it sounded very American in comparison to what uh, really you do. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> but yeah, it, sound, it sounded a lot like the, the Sex in the City. Oh, uh, did it really? Okay. Not, yeah, that, yeah. not that I watched Sex in the City, honestly. No, no. I'd like to clarify that. I'm sure you don't. Uh, in your hot tub next week. Although, although I'd, probably be, I'd probably be a Samantha if I had to be. Yeah, oh, right. <laughs> but, um, but yeah, I mean, he says a lot. Of, you know, a lot of it is the big, the, a lot of it is the big build-up and then, like the and the charming and suaving. So what do you do to create that excitement like what uh, what do you do to treat customers 
Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you know, that's the hu- the huge boon of uh, an international auction house is that we're we're all about sort of customer service. Um, so you know, Christie's has um, you know one. Uh, it's called a CTL system, and it's basically a sort of you know client liaison system where whereby somebody will speak to their one client, but there's hundreds of people trying to support that in whatever means of you know getting the wine to wherever they want. You've obviously had you know crazy situations where somebody will, will buy a wine at auction, you know, and pay for it that afternoon and then ask us to deliver it to Biggin Hill or wherever so they can fly it to Russia or wherever they are. So, you know, there's there's lots of things going on in all that we have to grease the wheels and, and make the clients happy and then we get repeat business. That's that's mainly how Christie's sort of uh, thrives and survives, really. Um, just go back to the online thing, though, it's slightly different, obviously, because um, in that situation um, there is no D-Day element. You know, we, we, can, um, we can sort of uh, see what clients are interested in or what they've clicked on um, and then we can sort of approach them if they're not bidding later on and we've got a two-week sort of window of things happening. Um, online auctions tend to be quite successful in America. I think they're sort of slightly more forward-thinking in terms of their bidding um, style. Um, more, more difficult in, in London at the moment, I think, because um, you have a large amount of sort of trade activity underbidding the sale and private clients sort of overbidding and buying eventually. Um, and for a trader to sit there bidding away against somebody over a two-week period is a bit of a big ask. Um, you know, they can submit their bids on one day and then if they win something, they win something. That sort of works well. Um, so, yeah, online auctions, they're, they're nice. Um, they're, we'll see what the future holds for them, but it does allow us a lot of scope to do intriguing things. We're going to do lots of sort of embedded videos, embedded photography, uh, 360 photography and all this sort of stuff that you can't do with an auction. All you get is me spinning around and around and around as many times as possible and th- throwing my gavel in the air. So I'm 360, but the uh, the internet it's also going to be 360. <laughs> well, uh, what kind of data do you hold on your clients and customers, both online and in person? Um, yep, I, I'm not 100% sure. I'm sort of not very uh, tech savvy, but uh, there is a system. <laughs> in terms of clients, <laughs> or is it just you with a little notepad and just saying, uh, Well, there is that. There's stuff doesn't like Marzipan. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It doesn't like, it doesn't like that. It doesn't like fenugreek. <laughs> Don't put it in his lunch next time you cook it. Um, no, no. Um, the, we have a huge system called COS, which is um, where you know all the client details go in. It has various tabs, including intelligence. You know, if so and so met so and so at a cocktail party, they write down what they talked about, this, this sort of thing. So there's all that stuff. It's slightly more difficult now because of the new GDPR regulations. You, um, you know, clients have a right to know the information that you have on them, um, and so you know, I, I don't really know how that's aff- affected. You know, Christie's at the, the the top part. We have a chairman's office that deals with the sort of top client liaisons, and so you know. I'm in a lowly position where I'm a sort of a specialist, but you know I have clients I speak to. But you know, if if the client is rated as a, a sort of a higher net worth level, and um, they probably have a, a connection somewhere higher in the in the company, whether that's one of the chairman or the chief executive or whatever. And so I'm dealing with their wine stuff, but the real connection is somewhere far far above me. <laughs> so to, to build on this a little bit, how do you attract new? customers is it just high net worth individuals you go after or do you try and like, put the hook out there for people who are possibly up and coming you know may not be minted yet but do you do you have a sort of future um, yeah sure no i mean yeah there's a christie's big um draw card really and especially the wine departments is that every sale we have something like 35 percent new clients um wow. coming to us yes it's, it's huge the wine department more than any other department so. why so why is that well i mean because that would be considered massive churn in a lot of places but i suppose the, but then it's not really an impulse purchase is it? Or, or yeah, yeah no we get them uh, we get them through various means i mean instagram is a key thing now um i take i took over the instagram uh, channel christie's wine follow it if you don't um and um, I post, you know, pictures of wines that are coming up for sale. I do Insta videos of me talking to, um, you know, producers or 
whatever, or lots of the other specialists are willing to do videos, then we do those, we do Insta stories, and lots of people follow it, 36,000 followers now, and so um, all of um, you know, those people can see it and then, and then register, click through on the link tree to the sale, so you get people through that means. Word of mouth, you know, in the days when we could actually meet up and do real events, um, then um, we would meet somebody and, and say to them, oh, well, you know, check out the, the auction or check out the Instagram and whatever, and then they, they come through that means. Um, and uh, other things are to do with uh, where we are based. So in London, we do our sales at, at King Street. In New York, we do them at the Rockefeller. But in Geneva, we do them in the Four Seasons. Um, and that tends to attract a certain you know, type of client that you know, is willing to bid X amount of money. Um, and so they're there in the bar or whatever, and then Christie's is emblazoned all over the Four Seasons. So, so those people come to you just through sort of you know, general us being in the right place at the right time, that sort of thing. And, um, and wine, people come to wine mainly because the price point is a lot easier than other departments. You know, we're, <laughs> we're, uh, we're probably, you know, we're, you know, you think that I'm selling really expensive stuff, but then, you know, I'm in a, uh, in a company where, you know, people are selling things for far, far more money than uh, the wine department do. Um, and so, you know, people are, people are willing to spend X, Y, and Z in the wine department and then go on and spend even more X, Y, Z times three in jewels or art. Well, this one leads on quite well because I was going to leave the, uh, leave this to almost last. But you know, to what extent is wine just another commodity, especially for the sorts of wines that you sell? Yeah, difficult questions, and it's one of those paper five sort of philosophical things. Um, how to attack that question is difficult. I mean, the answer is obviously yes and no, um, and you have to do the yes and the no side. Um, in terms of fine wine, um, yes, it's become commoditized at a certain level, I suppose, because if somebody's drinking it, then you know, by definition, it isn't, it isn't really, uh, it, by definition, it is a commodity if it's, if it's not been drunk. Um, and then it's just being traded as a sort of blue chip thing in the same way that anything else is being done, Bitcoin or a piece of artwork. So yes, that is a commodity and it's just on a sort of trading platform for years and years and years. If it's been drunk, then it comes out of being a commodity, doesn't it? And then it's been enjoyed. So that's a different thing altogether. And, you know, we're in the lucky position where most of our clients are, wine lovers, they're not sort of just investing in it because they think there's some money to be made. You know, everyone that bids and buys in a Christie sale actually does drink. So that's the, <laughs> the, the, main, the main thing. Um, I think, you know, maybe slightly more at the moment, whiskey's a big, uh, a big market, obviously. You can't, uh, you can't uh, talk about that at length in, in, in uh, the MW exam, but I think it's worth referencing um, that there's probably more investors at the moment in the whiskey market really? um, than... than drinkers just because it's big for you know Macallan Japanese whiskies these sort of things um, so you know you see it a little bit in wine with you know really intriguing things um, but I'd say mainly you know people are people are drinkers in in the wine world a apart from of course these you know big blue chip names where you know it's sort of understood that uh, you know people have been trading them for a while and will continue to do so is there anyone you wouldn't sell to or is there anyone you haven't sold to because they're riffraff Riffraff. <laughs> I wouldn't sell to myself. <laughs> How about that? Um, no, I mean, you know, we obviously we they got the cash. And... Yeah. Well, yeah. I mean, yeah. Christie's checks through all of this stuff, so you know, there has to be sort of various bank checks and things that you know they show that they can bid and buy. Um, you know, we're slightly more careful of selling to people that we're dubious about their intentions of it. If we think, you know, they will, um, you know, take a mid-shoulder bottle and uh, and you know, deliver it back at a certain stage that isn't mid-shoulder, then, um, then we're probably, you know, not looking to sell to them. Christie's obviously has a system where it can ban clients. Um, that's, you know, people who don't pay in time, really, um, because, you know, we're in a system where we have a 35-day window to pay our vendors. Um, but, 
you know, if a client isn't paying in 35 days, it creates a problem for me. And if I want to deal with my vendor again, then they're, they're not really going to be interested if at day 60 I'm still going, oh, we're waiting for the money from saying so. Um, so, yeah, we want people who pay on time. <laughs> How do you ensure that? Do you just phone them up and be very charming? Uh, yep, we have. Um, <laughs> oh, it's, it's, it's a, a difficult system because uh, you know we have this CTL system where we are in touch with the client. So if you know the buyer, um, you can approach them in a certain way. We also have a sort of credit and finance team, and and they are. It's the good cop bad cop thing, really, where the you know the credit department are sort of in charge of uh, you know ha- hammering on the door and saying pay up, um, and I'm in charge of buying a cup of Earl Grey and saying so. What's happening? <laughs> That's the way it works. So what uh, what real trends are you? seeing or have seen um, I know you mentioned champagne and they mentioned yep. sort of like the, the new minimal intervention yep. stuff are we, what, uh, or are you still is it still you know sort of dusty old Bordeaux that's coming through <laughs> what, well, you, not dusty they're all glossy take a look at the Instagram glossy bottles no but the dusty <laughs> the dusty sellers are fun I mean you, t- you can just get the two types of things really you get the um, you know the Avery seller that we did uh, a few years ago that was amazing that, that was your dusty old bottles of um, you know Clos de Tar 1945 amazing that was on the front cover um, and seven weeks worth of work by the way in that cellar to uh, pack it all up amazing but achieved uh, amazing results for the Avery family um, and but that's a, a sort of classic old English collector seller, really, which is fun. And then you have these sort of, you know, super collections, as I suppose, if you like, of, of things that have been stored in Octavian or indeed the world's largest storage of wine is in the Geneva Freeport. And, um, you know, those sort of things come to you. And that, and that sort of cases of 2005 Petrus or 2000 Mouton, whatever, really fun things that, you know, people want to collect. Um, people like doing horizontals and verticals. That's something to put into an essay if you're talking about the auction market, particularly the Mouton vertical, obviously because of the art labels back to uh, the Carlu label in 1924. People wanted to collect that up and down. Burgundy, more horizontals. People want the Chambertin. People want the Chambertin Clos de Bears. They want the Saint-Jacques. This is Rousseau. You know, across across a vintage, they want to sort of try that style. Um, so that's a trend for collectors is to, is to approach it in a different way and not just, uh, you know, buy the most expensive thing or buy the name they've heard of. The Asian market's slightly different. Uh, tends to buy things that it... To, that have a brand that's recognised and that they can pronounce. Um, Osone always slightly tricky on the Asian market because the AU um, is a sort of difficult thing to pronounce, but Lafitte Le Tour do very well there, have their own agents, uh, you know, agencies in the um, major cities and um, you know, they've always sort of established brand. Now, is there a celebrity premium? So if you had someone like, um, I, I, I don't know, <laughs> a famous politician or someone famous who's got a big... Uh, wine collection. Mm. Is there a premium for buying their Latour 20, uh, 2010? Absolutely, rocks? yes. Um, although not a politician. I think if one of us, one, a politician approached us, we might say no. Okay, oh, Br- <laughs> uh, Britney then, because you've got the Britney, Britney, oh, the Britney headset. Yeah, on, yeah, so, absolutely. Um, no, I mean, if, Brit- if Britney wanted to sell some wine, no, please, God, come to me. Yeah, <laughs> lucky me. Um, no, yeah, we, obviously there is. We've done, we've done, you know, this famous celebrity seller, Sir Alex Ferguson, um, you know, Sir David Frost, Ken Hom, um, the Doris Duke sale ages ago in America. Um, all of those sales, they achieve a premium because of the name on the, on the catalogue. We always try to um, persuade clients to put their name on the catalogue if we think that it will add a premium, um, and usually it does. Um, just recently, uh, this year, um, I dealt with um, Lord Snowden, who's Princess Margaret's son, and we'd sold some wine from his cellar, um, and I think it achieved you know, 10 to 15% better prices than it would have done without his name. Um, so, you know, it's just, it's just nice. It's, if, there's a, if there's a sort of a, a, 
a kudos around that name. People, particularly the Asian market, want to say, you know, we're, we're able to um, buy X, Y, and Z's wine and drink it at their dinner table. It's quite fun, isn't it? So what are the common, uh, most common mis- uh, misconceptions you think about auctioneers that you've, what you've heard? Um, that we're selling dusty bottles and we're all boring old buggers wearing black suits, right? <laughs> no, no, never said boring old buggers. <laughs> <laughs> Definitely uh, so no dusty bottles and I wear only zebra print. How perfect. Yeah. <laughs> no, misconceptions, I suppose, are that... Um, you know, it's sort of a, a sort of a bit of a Rapunzel's castle, you know, ivory tower sort of place where we're only dealing with um, X, Y, and Z for financial gain. You know, that's that's not what we're about at all. Um, you know, we're all wine lovers. I'm doing the MW because I actually like wine amazingly. Is it's you know that's sort of a, a strange idea, isn't it? Well, I'm beginning to regret it now <laughs> yeah, after no, no, that flight this morning. I'm thinking yeah. I don't love wine. See but, how it feels in September. Uh, yeah, exactly. <laughs> I, I'll be, I won't be drinking wine ever again. I'm going to gin. <laughs> Um, no, and so you know we're interested in promoting you know wines that are intriguing. That's why we take these fun things into sale. We, you know, we it doesn't really make much sense for us to sell a, a case of wine at a hundred quid or even or even five hundred quid. Really, you know, that's, that's not what Christie's top brass are interested in. But you know, we put those in our sales because we think our clients would be interested in them, and we're interested in promoting things that are delicious to people that want to drink delicious things. That's the the point of everybody in the wine trade, right? <laughs> Can you do your auctioneer voice? Isn't this it? <laughs> I don't know. I've not heard it. I was I hoping know. it might be a bit more. Um, uh, yeah, a bit more like that. I don't know. Maybe I'm sort of slightly shrill. I don't know. <laughs> no, I don't. I don't. I, I don't know that I can sort of replicate it. I just you can watch on the Instagram actually me selling the um, top lot of the Cape Fine and Rare for four hundred twenty thousand, a bottle of eighteen twenty one Grand Constance, and that was really fun because we were just able to build up this atmosphere in the room, and the eventual bidder was online, but um, Michael Fridjon was bidding in the room, and um, he fell out at about two hundred thousand or something. So later on, I. Came came back to him and I said, Michael's well out of the game. <laughs> Everyone in the room was laughing. So it was quite good fun and, uh, you know, bringing that gavel down at the end. I hurt my hand, actually, when I put the gavel down on that, but everybody in the room was so overjoyed. It was fantastic. It does sound exciting. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but sorry, there's one question I always like to end on. Um, what are the major causes for optimism, particularly in the world of fine wine and auctioneering? Plenty of, um, you know, scope for this one because, you know, it's wine. It's uh, the world's most hedonistic liquid, right? Apart from, you know, maybe Pilsner Lager or gin. <laughs> Marks and Spencer's. Marks and Spencer's yeah, Pilsner. Yeah, this is quite hedonistic now. I'm loving this on a Saturday afternoon. A rainy Saturday afternoon. With the aircon and lager at the moment. Yeah, it's perfect tasting, it's actually quite good. <laughs> no, plenty, plenty of scope for optimism. You know, the, 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 the wine world is changing at a really, really fast pace and more and more... You know, wines are being made in, in more and more places around the world. And I think that's really fun for, um, you know, drinkers and for the trade to tell stories and move things along to new buyers. Um, and new buyers are coming to it all the time. You know, there's always this question about um, consumption levels dropping. Um, and, yeah, you know, there has to be a certain aspect of that because the the trend for, you know, reduced alcohol wines and for these sort of fruit nat wines where they're co-fermenting things is obviously happening. But I think that's all just good innovation for a certain sort of, you know, age bracket consumer that works. But, you know, at Christie's level, we're seeing more and more consumers and buyers coming in. And so we're not seeing a drop in consumption at all. Um, You know, obviously we're not 100% sure that all of those people are consuming. Some of them could be investing. Um, But, uh, you know, we, we tend to reach out to them afterwards and then go for dinner with them. And, um, you know, we know for sure that they're, they're drinking, you know, some at least of what we sell them. <laughs>
Cool. Well, let's, uh, yeah, so you, we'll get everyone to follow you on Instagram. I'm putting the links, obviously. In, oh, yeah. In the follow- we have about 100 followers on Instagram for the Big Van Theory. So. <laughs> Shall I send you some of my 36,000? Oh. <laughs> yeah, something like that. Well, I only started it last week, so. Oh, well done. Yeah, great. Yeah, it's, yeah, it's perfect. Now, happy to be a guest and uh, happy to drink your Pilsner Lager here. Uh, real pleasure <laughs> to have you. Thank you very much. Thanks, Thanks so much. Bye bye.